Author and theologian Frederick Buechner once wrote about the anxiety that he felt over a health scare that his daughter uh, went through when she was young. And to describe this, Buechner used a metaphor. He used the Tower of London, more specifically the White Tower, uh, as a metaphor for his anxiety. And I want you to listen to what he says. I think it's an apt description. He says, on the second floor of the White Tower, there is a small chapel called the Chapel of St. John. It is very bare and simple. It's built all of stone with 12 stone pillars and a vaulted ceiling. There is a cool, silvery light that comes in through the arched windows. The chapel is very silent, very still. It is almost a thousand years old. You cannot enter it without being struck by the feeling of purity and peace that it gives. If there's any such thing in the world... It is a holy place. But that's not all there is in the White Tower. Directly below the chapel is the most terrible of all of the tower's dungeons. It has a heavy oak door that locks out all light and ventilation. It measures only four feet square by four feet high, so that a prisoner has no way either to stand upright in it or to lie down at full length. There's almost no air to breathe in it, almost no room to move. It is known as the little ease. He says, I am the white tower, of course, to one degree or another, all of us are. During the time of my daughter's sickness and its aftermath, I began to realize how much of my time I spent in that dark, airless, crippling place where there was no ease at all. Last week, we launched a new series of sermons that we're calling Letting Go of Anxiety. And I suspect that there are many of us here this morning who would acknowledge that we've spent time in that dungeon of little ease. Maybe some of you are there this morning, in fact. If I can stick with the metaphor of the White Tower for just a moment longer, I think the question that we're asking in this series is, How exactly does one move from the tormented dungeon of little ease, which many of us find ourselves living in, into the peaceful, quiet chapel of St. John? In fact, we're really asking, how do we take up residence there? How do we make that our refuge even when the circumstances around us would seem to defy that kind of peace? And maybe, maybe we're even asking, is it possible to move from the dungeon of little ease to the chapel of St. John. Because the truth is that some of us have lived in that little dungeon for so long that it's become home. And we're not even sure who we would be if we lived anywhere else. Well, let's try to answer those questions today by going back to the passage that we're focusing on throughout this series And it's found in the book of Philippians chapter 4. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Philippians chapter 4. Those of you who are regulars here should have a Bible of some kind, a digital or hard copy version of the Bible so that you can go and read and take notes and check up on me and see if I'm telling you the truth. While you're turning, I just want to review uh, a couple of things that we saw last week. First, this passage was written by the Apostle Paul who was in prison facing torture and death when he wrote it. Now think about that. Think about that. A prisoner facing torture and death 
is teaching people who aren't in prison facing torture and death how to experience peace. Now, that's ironic, isn't it? Last week, among other things, we saw that prayer with thankfulness is an important part of letting go of anxiety. We also talked about how important what you think about is to letting go of anxiety. And in the passage that we're going to look at today, Paul's going to elaborate on the importance of what we think about. It's going to give us some additional information about the importance of what we think about. But let's go back. Let's read the first part of our passage, and then we'll move on in just a moment. Starting in verse 6, Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, that's where we ended up last week. We're going to refer back to that that passage, those verses throughout this series. Well, let's move on now to verses 8 and 9. Paul says, finally, brothers, and I would add sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, Whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about, there's that word, think, think about such things. Whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. Now, I want to get into this list of words that Paul says to think about. I want to get into that in just a moment, but before I do, I want to take a minute and I want to say a little more about the relationship between our thoughts and our emotions. And let me just say it this way. What we feel can be changed by what we choose to think about. What we feel can be changed by what we choose to think about. And those of you who are English teachers in the room, yes, I know I ended that sentence with a preposition, but it was the best way that I could think to, con- to convey the idea. What we feel can be changed by what we choose to think about. And if there's anything that I wish I would have understood much sooner in my life, it's, th- it's this point, that what we feel can be changed by what we choose to think about. I don't know if you realize this, but our culture idolizes feelings. Uh, I would challenge you sometime to take stock of your own vocabulary, how much you talk about what you feel. Often when you say, I feel something, you're really meaning, I think something, but you use the word feeling, because our culture idolizes feelings, and largely, as a culture, we believe that we're slaves to what we feel, but feelings can actually be changed. Now, don't, don't, please don't misunderstand me. Uh, when I say feelings can be changed, I don't mean that they can be changed through willpower. If you try to change your feelings by willing yourself not to feel anxious, you'll give up, and you'll end up believing that, indeed, you are a slave to what you feel. But new feelings can be cultivated over time by being intentional about what we allow our minds to dwell on. Notice what Paul says in verse 8 at the end of this list of words. He says, think about such things. The word that's translated think there is the Greek word logizomai, which implies 
concentrated, focused thinking. It means being intentional about what we allow our minds to dwell upon. That we don't just we don't just let our minds go, but that we're very intentional about what we choose to dwell on. Now, I'm just going to ask you to stick with me for just a moment because I want to try to explain why what we feel depends upon what we think. Okay? Stick with me. I think it'll be worth it at the end. When you break it down, there, there really are three main components to a thought. Like the first one is information. You, you have to have information. You have to have stuff to think about. And most of what you and I think is stuff that we've been taught by someone somewhere. Okay, besides information, second, um, a thought includes an idea. Idea. An idea that you live by. In other words, uh, the assumptions or the beliefs that you have about reality, like the way that you see and interpret the world. Now, let me just give you an example. Here's Here's a very simple idea that many of you have. Beaches are for relaxing. Is that an idea that a lot of you have? Raise your hand if you have that idea. Beaches are for relaxing. I'm leaving in about 24 hours for a beach. That's why this is in the sermon today. <laughs> now, you and I, we, we didn't come into the world thinking that. We, somewhere we were taught that, maybe indirectly. Maybe your parents always took you to the beach when you were a kid for vacation, and you learned it indirectly. Maybe one of your favorite teachers somewhere used to say that. Maybe you heard it in a Jimmy Buffett song somewhere. But when it comes time to take a vacation, you immediately begin Googling places with beaches because your idea is that beaches are for relaxation, all right? Now, let me just add to that. Besides information and ideas, you also, a thought includes an image. You have an image in your mind that conveys the idea that you have about life, right? Okay, so for instance, if you believe that beaches are for relaxing, you probably have an image in your mind that looks something like this, right? Or maybe you have uh, this image in your mind, maybe this one. If you come from a Southern Baptist background, that is just a smoothie. That's all that is, okay? Now, I want you to watch how thoughts Ideas and images elicit feelings. Those of you who believe that beaches are for relaxing, what do you feel? What did you feel when you saw those images? Did you feel, I don't know, happy? Relaxed? Calm? Jealous? Feeling like maybe you need to go schedule a beach vacation? That's the relationship, you see, between our thoughts and our feelings. Thoughts are ideas and images which elicit specific feelings. And here's the thing. Over and over in the Bible, we're taught that the way to change begins with what we think about. 2 Corinthians chapter 10.5, for instance, we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Romans 12.2, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your 
mind. Ephesians 4, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds. Colossians 3, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Now, why do those verses, and there are so many more in the New Testament, why do they say the same thing about being intentional about our thought life? It's because thoughts are ideas and images which elicit feelings. And by the way, if you look down at verse 9, Paul says, back in verse 8, he says, think about such things. But then in verse 9, he says, put it into practice. In other words, do it. What he's saying is that thoughts not only elicit feelings, but they also ultimately affect behavior. Thoughts affect feelings, which affect behavior. So what we've been saying here is that what we feel can be changed by what we choose to think about. All right, That's the first thing I wanted to say today. Now that leads me to my next point. Okay, well, if we can change what we feel by what we choose to think about, what should we choose to think about? Well, throughout this series, we're going to look carefully at each of the words that is in this list of things that Paul says to think about, because they are the keys to letting go of anxiety and experiencing peace. So I want you to notice what Paul starts with in verse 8. He says to think about, notice what he says, whatever is true. And so here's, here's, here's my point. To let go of anxiety... To get out of that dungeon of little ease, if I can go back to Frederick Beekner's metaphor and to move into the quiet, peaceful chapel of St. John, you must intentionally and continually think true thoughts. I think true thoughts. And the reason that you must think true thoughts is that true thoughts elicit true feelings. Now, I don't know if you know this, um, but even though all feelings, any feeling that you have is real, they're not always true feelings. So feelings are real, but they're not always true. Let me give you an example. At some point or another, all three of my kids came home from school uh, with lice. Now, I know you're judging me right now that my kids had lice, but if you have little kids and they're not in school yet, I promise you when they go to school, at some point, they will come home with lice. It just happens. It happens. Now, every time they came home with lice, do you know what happened to me? My head started to itch. I felt like I had lice. Was it a real feeling? Absolutely, it was real. Was it a true feeling? No, I I never ended up getting lice from my kids. Feelings can be real, but not necessarily true. And those feelings, those false feelings, can lead to behavior that is not consistent with reality as God created it. Now, I want to tell you something that I think will shock some of you. One of the things that we learn in the New Testament, and by the way, you're just going to have to take 
You have to take my word for it today because I don't have time to go into all of it. Uh, You can check me out later. But one of the things that we learn in the New Testament is that the main tool that evil spiritual forces use to dominate humanity is false idea systems. False idea systems. I often hear people talk about spiritual warfare in terms of, you know, the individual. Sometimes they'll say, you know, I've been experiencing spiritual warfare. You know, like they've been having bad dreams maybe. Um, Maybe they've been facing temptations or they've had a string of bad things that have happened to them and they, they interpret that as spiritual warfare. I'm not saying that stuff isn't possibly spiritual warfare. I don't know if that's spiritual warfare or not. But if it is, I'm going to tell you something. That's nickel and dime stuff. The big guns that the enemy uses to destroy people and whole cultures, even whole churches, are false, evil idea systems and the images that power, empower those false ideas. Now let me give you an example. How did Satan bring down Adam and Eve? He planted a wrong idea in Eve's mind that God could not be trusted. And so she needed to take matters into her own hands to secure her well-being. And then what was the image that he used to convey that idea? A juicy-looking piece of fruit on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If God were good, he'd let you eat that. And all of human history was changed by that idea, that false idea, that false evil idea, And that image. Here's another false, evil idea system. I'm going to call it by what they called it in the mid-1800s. Negro inferiority. In the mid-1800s, scholarly writers, in an effort to perpetuate slavery... uh, put forth the idea of Negro inferiority, which argued that black people were not fully human. And that perpetuated hatefulness, feelings of hatefulness, toward black people and the shameful slavery of black men and women, and then other forms of oppression and segregation and violence against them that continues today. And we, as a culture, are still reaping the consequences of such a false, evil idea system. See, the nickel and dime stuff may be whatever's happening to you, but man, you want to talk about, you want to talk about spiritual warfare... Think about these false idea systems that take down whole people. Here's a false evil idea that has divided and destroyed whole churches. And I'm, I kid you not about this. Here it is. Organs are God-ordained musical instruments and drums and guitars are not. And you know what, uh, you know what the image was? that conveyed that idea, and and again, I kid you not about this, the image was largely, because remember when this was happening, the image was largely the long hair of the musicians who played those instruments in bands. Now let me tell you something, churches, whole churches were destroyed over that. 
relationships divided, families divided over that. It's a false, evil idea system. I don't know if I don't know if you know if you've ever if you've ever, if you've ever thought about this, but what God Jesus crucified, He confronted a false, evil idea system that the religious leaders of His day had about who could please God. See, evil idea systems are what the enemy uses to dominate and destroy more than anything else. Uses these false evil idea systems to dominate and destroy large swaths of humanity. Nihilism, materialism, cynicism, naturalism, hedonism, deism, communism. These are all idea systems, you see. False evil idea systems and the images that convey them have the power to possess and hypnotize whole cultures like this one. Put, the, put, put that, this one up on the screen. The German swastika. These, these idea systems have the power to uh, possess and hypnotize whole cultures. And they can bring great evil and destruction and great pain and suffering into untold billions of people's lives throughout history. And you see, growth in Christ, letting go of anxiety, involves uprooting and unlearning the evil idea systems and images that lurk in the recesses of our mind. And not only do we have to uproot and unlearn them, but we have to learn new True ideas and images that bring peace to the soul. And we have to intentionally and continually fill our minds with these true ideas and images. Let me just show you how this works as it relates to the feelings of anxiety. Here's a a false idea system. The survival of the fittest. And here's an image that might empower that idea. Now, what do you suppose that a person with that idea system and that image deeply planted in their mind feels most of the time? Fear? Anxiety? Why? Well, because you have to perform. You've got to achieve. You've got to get on top of other people. You have to get ahead of other people. You have to compare yourself to other people, compete with the other people, beat them, win, win, win at all costs. And when you win, you have to win again because your victory was only temporary. Letting go of the anxiety that the false idea of the survival of the fittest creates involves, as Paul says here in this passage, intentionally thinking true thoughts, and applying them to that idea. So here's another image that conveys a true idea that can bring peace to the soul. At the cross, the idea of the survival of the fittest dies a thousand deaths because the ultimate fittest willingly sacrificed his life for the least fit, me. And because of this, 
Your performance and your achievements mean nothing in terms of your worth. God doesn't accept you on the basis of your performance. He accepts you only on the basis of Christ's performance. And there's peace in that. The pressure is off, you see. And that's how you apply truth to a false idea system that creates anxiety in your soul. Now, I said this last week. I know that when I come along and say, hey, listen, you know, the only answer to your anxiety is the cross of Jesus Christ, your eyes glass over. I know that. You're like, well, of course he's going to say that. He's a pastor. and This is church after all. And you think to yourself, there has to be something more powerful than that and easier than that. Because frankly, some of you have tried this. And it didn't work. It didn't ease your anxiety. But I'm going to tell you something. There is no other answer to your anxiety that comes from, say, the survival of the fittest idea that you don't even know, by the way, that's running in your mind 24-7 because it's so deeply ingrained. There's no other answer. There is no other answer. You say to yourself, well, you know, somebody might say, think of all that you've accomplished. What if you fail next time? Somebody might say to you, well, think about how many people like you. What if the right people don't like you? See, there's no other answer. It's only the cross that can ease your anxiety. And I know you've tried it and it didn't work for you because you tried it a few times and, you know, nothing seemed to change. You still felt anxious. But that's why Paul uses this word that I mentioned earlier, legizomite. It means that you keep thinking about the truth of the cross and you keep repeating it to yourself over and over again until it becomes real to you. You apply it to the situations in which you feel anxiety. You have to understand that there are deep, deep ruts in your brain that the idea of the survival of the fittest has tread. You feel that idea is true because it's on a continuous loop 24-7 in your mind. And so the anxiety that you feel over your successes and failures is powerful and it's real. But listen to me, feelings, while they are real, aren't necessarily true. What is true is that if you have believed in Christ, you are accepted, not because of your performance at all, but on the basis of Christ's performance, his life and his death, his obedience, not your obedience. And so when you start to feel anxious, you talk truth to yourself. You repeat the idea of the gospel over and over in your mind. There are only two things, by the way, that you can do with your mind. You can listen to it or you can talk to it. And the problem with most of us is that all we do is listen to our minds. But you have to talk to it. Paul says you have to keep talking that truth into your mind because your mind naturally moves by its own inertia to false evil idea systems that create anxiety and other destructive emotions in your soul. But the power of the gospel is greater than any false idea system. 
At the cross, the power of false idea systems in your life suffered defeat. And they no longer have to dominate your life if you've believed in Christ. And over time, with much concentrated, intentional effort, the truth of the gospel will begin to feel real. And then when it does, your feelings will correspond with what is true. Let me just give you something very practical that you could do to begin to feel the truth of the gospel. A number, say, say three times a day. I don't know what the number is. Say three times a day. Maybe at 10, 2, and 4 o'clock, if you're an old Dr. Pepper drinker, you know why I chose those numbers. Uh, but say three times a day. Just stop for a few minutes and monitor what you're thinking. And if you're feeling anxious, start applying the truth of the cross to what you're feeling. Oh, you know what? I've got this project in front of me, and if I don't succeed, what's that going to say about me as a person? It'll say I'm a failure. And then you go, wait, no, 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 no. That, that is absolutely a false idea system. Here's a true one. That on the cross, Jesus Christ settled once and for all, for all of eternity, he settled my worth when the most worthy person in the universe died for little old moi. And you just keep telling yourself that. Maybe you even in a moment, just close your eyes in a moment and you just, Lord, please make that truth real to me in this moment. And I promise you that you're not going to feel it the first time or maybe the 20th and maybe the 100th time. But eventually, over time, that feeling will become real. And I'm going to tell you something. It's the only answer to your anxiety. Medication, if some of you are on medication, I said it last week, don't feel guilty about that. But understand this, medication can take away anxious feelings, but it can't give you peace. The only thing that can give you peace is the cross of Jesus Christ. That's it. Now, I just I want to say two more things very quickly about that. One is directed to those of you who are counselors at City Church. We've got a number of counselors here in our church. I want you to understand something. That loosening the grip of fallen imagery and its underlying idea structures is a fundamental part of what mental health professionals who are Christians must be doing to aid their patients in general, but certainly for their patients who believe in Christ. Identifying, uprooting, unlearning, and replacing those evil idea systems, those false evil idea systems with true ones, major part of what mental health professionals should be doing. Second, to us as City Church as a whole, loosening the grip of fallen imagery and its underlying idea structures is also fundamental to discipleship. Those of us who are involved in discipleship, we must help the people whom we disciple intentionally and progressively identify and uproot and unlearn those destructive ideas and images and then help them fill their minds with the images and the ideas that filled the mind of Jesus himself. Let me just say this again, to let go of anxiety, to get out of that dungeon of little ease and into the peaceful chapel of St. John, to use Beekner's metaphor, you must intentionally and continually think true thoughts. All right, let's end with this.
Why does any of this matter? I mean, is this just a counseling session? Is that all this is? That we just, we don't want you to feel anxiety? That God doesn't want you to feel anxiety? Well, certainly that, there is truth in that. One reason that God wants you to learn to experience his peace uh, is for your sake. It's not his desire that you live in perpetual fear and anxiety, but also because of this. And I hope you will get this. I hope you will listen to this. The degree to which you experience freedom from anxiety is the degree to which you are free to serve the people around you. Because listen, when you're living out of anxiety and fear, you can't live for anyone but yourself. Anxiety and fear make you self-obsessed. You can't think of anyone but yourself. But you see, when the gospel takes hold in your life and it begins to permeate your thoughts and your feelings, it frees you to serve people in the same manner that Christ served you, sacrificially, joyfully, willingly, peacefully. On the cross, Jesus died so that you could live. Jesus, on the cross, experienced separation from the Father so that you could always experience the presence of the Father. And you see here, that vision statement that we have on our wall that way, up there, it cannot be accomplished by an anxious church. A church that is full of fear. Trust me on this. I have served in places that are full of fear. And churches that are full of people who are full of fear never take risks. To realize that vision statement on the wall, we will have to take risks. We will have failures along the way. We will have some people reject us. Some people will get mad at us. Some people will badmouth us because the cross of Jesus Christ is offensive. Some people will leave this church because of something that is said or done that displeases them. But I'm going to tell you, if we are paralyzed with anxiety and fear about all of that, we will become insular and isolated. We cannot do that. Those kinds of churches are miserable places to be in because they're dead. Self-perpetuation is all that they are about. But churches that fill their collective minds with truth and the truth of the gospel... And understand that greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. They allow the truth to saturate their thinking and their emotions. And those kinds of churches can take risks. And they can be rejected. And they can be maligned. And still serve the people in their communities. Because the peace of God is guarding their hearts and their minds through the cross of Jesus Christ. Would you bow your heads with me and let's pray. Father, everything in us says that's, it's, that doesn't work. We need something else. We need some more current idea, something that can help us to feel, keep from feeling anxious, to feel more peace. But this is how you have created reality, and I pray that you would impress this upon the hearts of every man and woman in this room. 
for those that are here today that may never have believed in Christ, maybe they've never heard the truth that the basis upon which you accept people isn't on their performance, but is on the basis of Jesus' performance. Pray today, Lord, that they would hear that, that they would hear that word of grace, and that they would believe in the Lord Jesus Christ today. For those who have believed in Christ, Lord, I pray that they would begin to just continually rehearse the powerful truth of the gospel over and over and over, and they would fill their minds with that. And that in time, as they do, that their feelings would begin to match the reality the peace that the gospel brings into the human soul. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We'll spend all of eternity thanking you for the truth of the gospel. And it's in your name, Lord Jesus, that we pray.